you would turn in your Bibles to uh, the very last chapter of the book of Job, Job 42, that's what I want to direct your attention to uh, this evening. But first, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. O Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, as we come to this, the end of your day, we pray once again that you would take the words of your scripture as they are proclaimed and press them on our hearts, that we might see uh, not simply uh, deeper meaning in this passage than perhaps we've seen before, but we might by faith see the Lord Jesus Christ and know him and his salvation for ourselves. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Wherefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildag the Shuhite and Zophar the Narmathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Kerenhapak. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, uh, Job died an old man and full of days. Praise God for his holy word. So we finally come to the end of the book of Job. I I feel we've only scratched the surface of all the things that the book says. It contains many mysteries, many mysterious passages. But I want to just draw together today some of the themes that I laid out in my earlier sermons on this. I think one uh, question that comes immediately to mind, of course, is, uh, is this chapter uh, a giant proof text for prosperity teaching? There's a sense in which we've had all of the agony and the contradiction, the stripping of Job of everything that he considered dear, everything that made him a great man within the community, everything that brought comfort to his own soul. We've seen him stripped of all of that. And then at the very end, he seems to be restored. 
And is one interpretation of this book, perhaps, that it's a giant proof text for prosperity teaching. If one just hangs in long enough and keeps believing, everything will be alright in the end. And doesn't that cut off the book's usefulness then for, for those who are suffering? We know people who suffer and they're faithful Christian believers and their suffering is only ended in death. Uh, We know Christian believers who go through terrible, terrible suffering and there is no restoration at the end. Does the book of Job become somewhat trite at this point? Because, hey presto, as if by magic, all of the problems disappear right at the end. Well, I want to come to address that particular point uh, a little bit later on, but first what I want to do is is pull out some of the themes that are being brought together in this final chapter before we turn to that big question. The first thing to notice about this chapter is Job's repentance. Job is now a transformed individual. The last few chapters have seen some remarkable speeches. First of all, put into the mouth of uh, this young man, Elihu, who bursts onto the scene as if it were from nowhere towards the end of the book of Job. We don't hear about him until he speaks at the end. And then, of course, uh, uh, the theme is picked up by the Lord God himself. And we have two great speeches Uh, given by the Lord God. And what do these speeches do? Well, they confront Job with a number of things. Elihu, we might say, confronts Job with the transcendence of God. What seems to be happening in the book of Job is that slowly but surely, the exchanges between Job and his friends are degenerating into ways of thinking about God that are very, very human. And Elihu is the man who sounds a sort of warning note and comes in and reminds Job and presumably the friends who are sitting with him that, no, God is transcendent. God's ways are far above human ways. There is no way that you can read, Elihu is saying, read off the surface of your experience what's really going on in the mind of God. There is a transcendence, a mystery to the mind of God that you have lost sight of. That, I think, is the lesson of Elihu's speeches. But, of course, uh, Elihu does not have the last word. If you remember, those of you who were here when I spoke on Elihu's speeches, I said one of the mysterious things about Elihu's speeches is he seems to get it correct, but God still speaks. And even at the end of the book of Job, I'm inclined to repeat that and say, I think Elihu gets it correct. You will notice that when God rebukes the comforters, he does not rebuke Elihu. The others are rebuked for misspeaking about him. Elihu is not rebuked, which inclines me to think that Elihu has spoken truth, which then, of course, presses that question of why does God speak after Elihu? And the answer is, well, Elihu speaks truth, but he doesn't speak the whole truth. One of the things I think Elihu misses is a certain human compassion for Job. Elihu himself is a sinner just like Job is. Elihu himself is one who will be subject to suffering and yet throughout his speeches there is no compassion shown for Job. So there's possibly a sort of existential kind of lack in what Elihu says. More significantly from a theological perspective I think is this. God, 
emphasizes in his speech his power over all creation. And then, particularly in his second speech, his power over evil. God is the one who comes in and reminds Job that all of the chaos in his life, which Elihu has correctly argued cannot be understood simply by reading the surface of, all of this chaos, as chaotic as it is, yet lies within the sphere of God's sovereignty. And that figure of the Leviathan, the terrifying creature, the terrifying sea creature, which if you look elsewhere in Scripture seems to represent a powerful force of chaos. And I argue from the description that God gives of the Leviathan when you compare it to the description given of Satan in other places, seems to be the personification of evil. And yet the Lord has him by the tail. The Lord has complete control over him. The Lord uses him as a plaything. God presses on Job that he is sovereign even over evil. And that sets up, I think, the play for Job's confession of repentance. It's interesting when we read this last statement of Job, one of the things that comes through very clearly is that Job has not simply learnt throughout the narrative throughout this book more about God. The knowledge of God certainly has increased, but it's not increased in the way that, you know, if I were to say to you, go away and learn about Napoleon, and you were to go away and read three or four great biographies of Napoleon, you might return in a month's time and say, my knowledge of Napoleon has greatly increased. It's not simply that Job has accumulated more accurate facts about God at this point, He's come to understand in a deeper and more profound way how he himself stands before God. He has come to realize his smallness before God. Uh, Forgive me for a British analogy here, but imagine if I wandered into a room and I found myself in the presence of an old lady and I engaged in a conversation with her and then I left the room. And sometime later, I switched on the television and I saw this old lady on the television and I realized it was actually Queen Elizabeth II. My knowledge of that little old lady has profoundly deepened. But if ever I found myself in her presence again, my feelings, my behavior, everything would be profoundly different at that point. Job has come through his struggles to understand his smallness before God. And when God makes those final speeches, if you like, God gives Job a lens by which to make sense of his experiences and understand his smallness before God. He's also come to realize that God is in control. And he's therefore come to realize that he does not have the knowledge or the status to opine as he does about his experiences and God's relationship to them. Uh, I love that distinction in J.I. Packer's book, uh, Knowing God. He makes a distinction between knowing about God and knowing God. Uh, You can know about somebody and never meet them. But when you meet somebody, you know them personally. And if your friendship continues over time, as you know more about them, so your relationship with them is deepened, transformed. It becomes 
different. That is what has happened to Job in this book. It is not simply that he's learned more facts about God. His entire relationship with God has been changed at precisely the same time as he's learned these other things. The application to us, I think, is... uh, Well, there are numerous applications one could draw. Uh, One of them is, I think, what Job does at the end here is he makes this uh, short speech and then he shuts up. Uh, The importance of silence before God. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. There's a time to speak, but there's also a time to hear and to listen. Think of Psalm 83, the psalmist uh, getting very frustrated and understandably frustrated uh, the, the good seem to die young, uh, and the old and the wicked seem to live to a ripe old age and then die very, very peacefully. And it doesn't make any sense to him until he says he goes into the sanctuary. And presumably when he went into the sanctuary, he didn't go there to pontificate. He went there to be confronted with, we might say, the speech of God, through the sacrifices he would have witnessed through the things that connected back to God's great saving acts towards Israel in the past, the Ark of the Covenant, the priesthood. Ultimately, Job, we might say, is who God says he is. And that's the same for all of us. And that means that as Christians, our first task, if you like, is to listen rather than to speak to hear rather than to shout. It's why preaching, I think, is important, because when you come to church on a Sunday, you hear what Luther would say is the word that comes from outside, the word that addresses you and tells you who you are. Second lesson I think we can draw from Job's speech is this. We too, like Job, need to understand that God is in control, whatever the world or our empirical experience tells us. Our frequent confusion, the confusion we feel in life, is in part the result of the moral complexity and the fullness of the universe. We feel that things aren't as they should be, and that's a correct feeling. Things are not as they should be. There's a lot of confusion, chaos, contradiction in the world around us. Often you'll hear something will happen and somebody will say, yes, but God is not mocked. And at the back of my mind, there's always that little voice saying, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, God seems to be terribly mocked in our world today. And if we allow ourselves to become mesmerized by the surface of things, by the events that happen to pop up before our very eyes, we will find ourselves getting confused, perhaps depressed, even despairing. But Job, the book of Job, teaches us that God is in control. The chaos which Job experiences is no evidence that God is not in control. In fact, those of us who read the book know, of course, that all of this chaos is, from the very start, set within strict bounds that God himself has established. Satan, you can take everything from Job, but you cannot touch his body. Satan, you may touch Job's body, but you cannot take his life. Satan is never able to operate in the book of Job beyond the bounds that have been sovereignly set. And we too need a real existential faith. 
We might say that the Job at the start of the book of Job, he has, he's heard of God, he, he seems to have a, a decent grasp of who God is, he has some relationship to God, he's called a righteous man. We know that he engages in sacrifices for his children. But now he's seen God. Now he's seen God. Now he knows him in a way that is far more intimate. This is no mere intellectual assent, this last speech of Job. And we need to be careful and wary of mere intellectual assent. Mere ideas are not really that useful. I can have an idea of who my wife is. I can have an idea of what it might be to love her. But unless I know her as a person, unless I truly love her as part of a relationship, those ideas don't mean anything. In fact, on their own, they would represent a profoundly inadequate view of what a relationship with a wife should be. Job here has a much more profound knowledge of God. God teaches us through his word, and we get lots of facts through God's word. But there's an experiential aspect to this as well, isn't there? Experience challenges our beliefs. It's often counterintuitive. It drives us back to the Word. It drives us to greater dependence upon Christ. That's kind of what's happened to Job here. But of course, it isn't just the fate of Job that the last chapter deals with. It's also the fate of Job's friend. Uh, I mentioned Elihu doesn't get his knuckles wrapped at this point, and I think that's very significant. But the other three do. They're rebuked for speaking wrongly of God. It's intriguing, actually, that the Lord says, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Uh, well, God seems to have corrected Job at points in his own speeches to Job. And I think we can, we can make a sort of distinction here. I think we might say, you know, Job was wrong-headed at points. And given the intense suffering and immense suffering that he'd gone through, we should probably look on him with some charity. But he was at least right on the fundamental point. Job understood that his suffering was not the direct result of a particular sin. That's the big error of the other three. They can't get their heads around the idea that Job is suffering other than for something he's done. Job doesn't make that mistake. And notice, uh, Job is to sacrifice and pray for them. Job takes on an interestingly priestly role at this particular point relative to his three friends. They've sinned, and the Lord says, you need to get yourself some sacrificial animals, sacrifice them, and Job is going to intercede for you. These men need an intercessor. And what better intercessor of the characters in what we've read than righteous Job? He's the man who steps up. What might we say about this for application for us today? Sin requires sacrifice of atonement and intercession. That's the dynamic we get here at the end of the book of Job. There has to be blood sacrifice, and that sacrifice has to be offered by prayer to God. We see that, I think, from the moment Adam and Eve fall, they're clothed in bloody skins. If 
being able to see their naked bodies was the problem, then the fig leaves would really have solved it. Fig leaves being uh, opaque. But no, the Lord clothes them in bloody skins, hinting that for this problem to be solved, blood must be shed, life must be sacrificed. We see it in Cain and Abel, don't we? It's a mysterious uh, chapter, chapter 4 of the book of Genesis. But one thing we can say is, Abel offered a blood sacrifice, and that was acceptable. The mere sacrifice of offering of vegetables didn't reach the level necessary. And here we get it. We get it in Job. It's reinforced, of course, Leviticus 16. Sacrifice, burning of incest, Uh, Blood is shed, prayers are offered. Hebrews 9, verse 22, Under the law must everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As Job's friends need a mediator, of course, so do we, uh, who here has not spoken wrongly of God, Christian or non-Christian. How often do we as Christians blame God for something that has not worked out quite as we want it? We lock our car keys, and I speak from personal experience, we lock our car keys in the car, and our instinct is to ask God why he allowed it to happen. Speaking wrongly of God. Non-Christians, the mere act of not believing in God's word is to speak wrongly of God. 1 John 5.10 Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And so I think this passage foreshadows, points us towards the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Job's comforters need a mediator, they need blood sacrifice and prayer, how much more do we? If their sin of speaking against God requires sacrifice and prayer, how much more do our sins of speaking against God? And how much more glorious, of course, is our mediator than Job, righteous man though he was, great man among the ancients though he was. Hebrews 7, we have the ultimate and the great mediator. So Job, Job then is uh, silenced. And he's now a better man than he was. The comforters are rebuked. And there is sacrifice and prayer offered on their behalf. And then, of course, in the last section, we have the restoration. And is this the moment when Job becomes trite? It becomes a trite fairy tale about a man who suffers and then he gets it all back in the end. Well, On the surface, it certainly seems that way. We're told Job receives twice as much by way of material goods as he lost. I don't know if you see those every now and then, those adverts for Joel Osteen's church pop up on uh, uh, the TV. And it's always that quotation from one of his sermons. uh, If you humble yourself before the Lord in due time, he will exalt you. Which I assume Joel means uh, he will make you very rich. If you give to my church in due time, you will get back a hundredfold. That, you know, if I were to, if you were to say, well, Truman, justify that from the Bible, maybe, maybe. 
Maybe Job 42 would be the place that I'd go to start building my case. Is that a correct interpretation of Job 42? Well, we'll come to that in a second. Secondly, Job has his family restored. He's got ten children. Gets his kids back. Uh, Many commentators think he probably gets a new wife because it didn't end well with the first wife. Remember? Curse God and die. Those are the last sort of words his, uh, his wife said to him. They're not great for sort of long marriage, I wouldn't have thought, that kind of dynamic. Maybe he got a new wife, we don't know, but he certainly gets ten children. And we're told that he gets a long life. He lives twice, it seems. Twice the normal span in those days. Wow. You know, for, for you know, who knows how long he suffered, but it seems he gets pretty amply compensated for the suffering through which he's gone. Now let's think about this for a moment. Well, first of all, I think the first thing to notice, and we've already touched on this, <clears throat> is that Job's restoration only comes after his action as priest. First of all, he prays. There's a sacrifice and prayer offered on behalf of his comforter friends. And then he's restored. And I think when we see in that, we can perhaps again track forward to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's a sort of truism to say it, isn't it? But Jesus is only resurrected after he's actually died. It's only after his humiliation in death that he's resurrected. I always love preaching during thunderstorms. It kind of adds to the the pungency. So it's a pattern of the work of Christ. But then, I also think it's worth raising a question about the restoration. The restoration of Job did not erase the past. He lost all his children. Children are not fungible commodities. It's not a case of, well, you know, uh, uh, you lose a child, but it doesn't matter, because you and your wife can always have another one. It doesn't work like that, does it? Children are not objects, we might say. They're subjects. Every child is unique. And while a parent's relationship with each child will bear an analogy to their relationship with every other one of their child, children, There's a unique dimension to it. The pain of Job's lost children, I don't think it's taken away by the restoration. Job would not be human if that was the case. I imagine that even after the restoration, Job would occasionally wake up at night with the faces of the children he'd lost dancing before his mind's eye, maybe weeping, for the potential that had been wiped out on that terrible day when they all died. I don't think this restoration erases the past. A superficial reading might lead us to think, well, all the pain is taken away, but I don't think it is. I think the pain must remain. I think it's important not, if you like, to fall into Elihu's era, if indeed this is his era, and that is of not having human sympathy for Job 
in his human condition. Job's restoration does not simply make the past of no account. He gets ten more children, but he's still the man who's lost ten children. And even Job's restoration is only temporary, isn't it? He dies. An old man full of days, but he still dies. Forgive me for mentioning Woody Allen from the pulpit, but remember when Woody Allen is asked if he's afraid of death, he says, I'm not afraid of death, of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. I was always struck as a student coming across the statement by the Roman lawyer, orator and philosopher Cicero, who said, no man is so old that he does not think he can live for another year. So it's a fascinating statement. Nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to die. Job lives a long time, but I bet on the day that he died, he still believed he could live another year. Job's restoration is not absolute in that sense. He's still subject to the weaknesses of this fallen world. The suffering of this world, I think, maybe this is the the lesson of Job, and lesson even of the restoration is this. One of the lessons. The suffering of Job and the contradictions we see around us are to make us long not for the kind of restoration that Job has here, wonderful blessing in this earthly realm, though that is to him. It's to make us long for the great restoration at the end of time. The end of the book of Job is not the end. The end is the general resurrection at the end of time. That's when Job will be fully restored. And it's that that puts all of Job's sufferings ultimately into perspective. Not this temporary restoration, which is a great blessing to him in this earthly realm. But it is not that which ultimately relativizes the sufferings he's gone through. It is the general resurrection at the end of time that relativizes those things. This is made very clear in the New Testament, Luke 18. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Is Job, to go back to where I started, is it trite? Does its conclusion undermine all of the lessons that we seem to glean from it about suffering as we're moving through to this point? 
does it rather neatly wrap up the story in a way that renders it rather incredible? I think not. The restoration does not erase the past. It still leaves Job as a man who's lost, lost his children. What it does do, though, is point us towards the great resurrection at the end of time, which will bring all things to a perfect conclusion. Let's pray. O oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the witness of your servant Job. We thank you for the tale that the book of Job tells. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we walk through this veil of tears and at different times and in different places face contradiction and suffering, spiritual, mental, physical, and Lord, as we look at that day where we know one day our own bodies will give way and we too shall die, as Job himself did, we pray, O oh Lord, that all of these things might be goads, motives, things that provoke us to look beyond this life and to the Lord Jesus Christ and the great resurrection of which he speaks and which is promised in him. For we ask this in his name. Amen.